Thanks, bro. Uh, good morning. Today we are going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. And lucky for me, I did not draw the passage on head coverings. Instead, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. So thanks, Claude, for taking that one yesterday. I took one for the team last week. Yeah. Um, man, that's a hard passage. So uh, the Lord's Supper, though, this is much easier and, and much more fun to talk about for me. To talk about the Lord's Supper and what the Lord's Supper is, we, we do the Lord's Supper every week here. Um, we do communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. That's, it's, it's a part of our regular worship gathering. And I thought to, to give you a little bit of context for what the Corinthians were going through, I want to tell you about my normal uh, supper experience in, in our home. Because I have these two little torrents of destruction named Kennedy and Shepard. And uh, one of them's four and one of them's one. And they're delightful children. Uh, but children, no children, are tidy eaters. And so supper time in my family, 90% of the time, we all sit down, we eat dinner together, and it's, it's a glorious time. Usually uh, I pray and then Kennedy prays, and it's, it's a great time for us to enjoy the meal together. But every once in a while, um, I will have something else that I need to be doing while the children are eating because it takes kids forever to eat. And so I'll get them started eating and then maybe I'll walk away for two minutes to go wash dishes or something, you know, just keep, keep the, the house in order. And I'll give them very clear instructions as to what I want them to be doing at that time. I want you to sit here and eat your food and keep your hands to yourself. Very simple. There's not much to this. Two minutes goes by, I return and neither are keeping their hands to themselves or eating their food. In fact, the food is everywhere except for their mouths. It is in bodily crevices where food should never be. It is on walls and under the table and on the table. My, my son, when he drinks, he is like Thor from the Avengers, where he just drinks his water as ferociously as possible and then slams it on the floor as if to ask for another. This is, this is Shepherd's method. We've got, we've got trouble coming uh, for us in the future with that one. This, is, this has to be what the Apostle Paul felt like with the, Corinthians, with the Corinthians, with the Lord's Supper. He started this church. He started this church just a few years prior in Corinth. Now he has, he has left. And the fact that he was able to plant a church in the city of Corinth is amazing. This town is a secular town where anything goes. You would not think that a church would be able to be built so strongly in this city. But yet... Paul was able to see the fruit of the Lord come forward and the, and the church was built. And now he is left on one of his missionary journeys in order to build more churches, to see more churches planted so that God may be more famous throughout the entire world. And he's hearing these reports that his simple instructions about the Lord's Supper are being completely disregarded. And instead of the people enjoying the Lord's Supper as he had taught them, these people, they were using it as an opportunity to get drunk and to oppress the poor. Those with wealth were eating more, and those with wealth were drinking all the wine, while those who had nothing were sitting to the side going hungry. When Paul hears this, he is rightfully outraged. And this is where we pick up in the story today. Paul's rightful outrage about what is happening in the church in Corinth around the communion meal. For most of us, the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, 
is more often than not kind of a similar experience to what the Corinthians are going through. Sure, we might not be getting drunk with wine, and no one's getting full on this bread, okay? (laughs) But it's just as meaningless to many of us. The reason why they're doing this is because they don't understand the purpose of communion. They wouldn't be doing it if they understood what it was that they were supposed to be doing. And so for most of us, it's, it's just an empty religious ritual. And for some of us, we might have grown up in a, in a background where it was very significant, but just as empty. I know, like, my wife grew up Roman Catholic. Her first communion experience was very meaningful to her family. It meant a lot, but as a rite of passage and not a religious experience. It meant that she was, it, it was almost like a bat mitzvah for Catholics. Where it meant that she's coming of age in her family. We often do this communion thing where, you know, we come forward, we pinch off a piece of the bread, we dip it in whichever grape liquid your conscience permits, and then we don't think about it anymore. What I want to do today is to take your understanding of the Lord's Supper and to expand it and to fill it with the true meaning of the Lord's Supper, with the essence of the Lord's Supper, with the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and with the effects of of the Lord's Supper. I want you to be able to see that communion is a special, sacred meal that has the power to really shape your character and your life. That the, that the communion meal is an opportunity for our souls to connect with God in a special way. So as we do that, let's dive into this text. We're going to be in, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting with verse 17, if you have your Bible, you can open it. I think we'll also have the, the, um, the words on the screen. So let's read the word of the Lord together. When I finish, I'm going to say thanks be to God. I'm going to say the word, this is the word of the Lord. You say thanks be to God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, while another gets drunk. What? I love it. It's just like, that's what Paul said. He says, what? What are you doing? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? And he says, snarky. Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, this thanks word, this is the word Eucharist in Greek. That's where we get the, that, that language from. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. For if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Three points today as we dive into this topic of communion, Lord's Supper. And the three points are this, the, the essence of communion. What is it? The purpose of communion. Why is it? And the, and the effects of communion. What does it do? This is what we're talking about. The essence, the purpose, and the effects. Let's talk about the essence of communion first. One thing that is painfully obvious in Paul's writing is that he is convinced, convinced, as you read this, you know that Paul's convinced, that the communion meal is exceedingly important. This isn't something to be taken flippantly. Paul knows that this is an important meal. Anything that's that important has to be taken seriously so that you don't mess it up. So let's read what he has to say. He, he, he describes the essence of communion, why it's so important, in verses 23 through 26. I'm going to read them again so that we can be reminded of this word. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what he's doing with this passage is he's reminding the Corinthians of how the sacred meal was initiated. How did Jesus start the sacred meal and why did he start it? And he, te- and he roots it into this last supper, this meal, where the disciples were eating the Passover feast with Jesus. Jesus sent them ahead to prepare the the room for the Passover. It's the night before he was betrayed. So it's just right before he he went to the cross, right before he died, he initiated the sacred meal during the Passover time. And what he's doing with this is he's connecting the Passover with the fulfillment. He's saying the fulfillment of the Passover is coming. The true purpose of the Passover is coming. At Passover, the people of Israel, they sacrificed lambs, and they put the the blood of the lambs on the doorpost by their house, so that when the angel of death came through Egypt, he would pass over the homes with the blood covering it. And they had to do this in a hurry, because after after that happened, they had to get out of Egypt in a hurry, so they grabbed their bread without without giving it time to rise, hence the unleavened thing, and they ate it. And throughout the centuries following that, the people of Israel, they would celebrate this meal, this feast, to remember what they had, what what God had done for them. 
And so Jesus here, he's saying, I am that sacrificial lamb. When my blood is spilled for you and you hide in me, I'm like a covering, a shield from the Lord's judgment. When you hide in me, when you eat my flesh and drink my blood, the judgment of God passes over you. He's giving the Passover a full understanding, a full meaning for the disciples. And so this is what he's talking about when he talks about the essence of communion. Now, in today's church, the essence of communion has different meanings in different churches, right? Some of us grew up in, in Catholic churches. Some of us grew up in Lutheran churches. Some of us grew up in po- Protestant churches, Unitarian Universalists, or the whole, the whole gambit. They, we've got people from every background. Lots of us didn't even grow up in church. But different churches throughout the world believe different things about communion. And one of the most popular is from the Roman Catholic tradition, where the Lord's Supper has really become something that's kind of like magic. And, and this is why a priest stands in front of the church, and he speaks special words, and then the food, the, the bread and the wine, in the Catholic tradition, is literally changed into the body and the blood of Jesus. And so when you take a little piece of bread, that is Jesus that you are holding, and when you take a little sip of wine, that is Jesus that you are sipping. It is literal, it is mystical, it's hard to understand. Many people find it... Um, they find it far-fetched at times. But then another position came from the Protestant position. And just like good Protestants, it went completely opposite of the Catholic tradition in as many ways as possible. And so within the Protestant tradition, what you see in churches is them saying, you know, Catholics, they make communion everything, so we're going to make it nothing. Communion doesn't matter at all. In fact, it matters so little that we're only going to do it four times a year And we're only doing it that much because Jesus tells us that we need to, even though we don't really think that we need to, because it doesn't matter, is what you get in most Protestant churches. They've taken the communion meal, and they've changed it into just a memorial service. There's no meaning in this. There's no significance in this. It's just bread and wine. That's that's what you hear. This is just bread and juice, because Protestants don't drink wine. It's just bread and juice. And you don't hear of any of the significance there. There's, it's as if to say, nothing sacred here. Honestly, I think that this is a little bit of an over-response to the Catholic position. Because I think that communion has more significance than just a memorial service. So in between this quasi-magical ritual and this bare memorial is the true significance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a sacred meal that connects our souls to God. I think it has significance for us. That is the essence of communion. It's a sacred meal that connects our souls to God. But what is its purpose? Why do we do it? I think there's two primary purposes for this meal. And the first one is that it connects your soul to God by looking back. How does it do it? It connects your soul to God by looking back. A historically grounded view of communion reminds us of how Jewish people celebrated Passover. You see, when Jewish people celebrate Passover, still to this day, when Jewish people celebrate Passover, they don't just get together and eat the elements of Passover and say, 
we're remembering our ancestors in Exodus. No. Instead, they say, this is the night when God brought us out of Egypt. It's as if they are teleported. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The people sitting around the table become not the distant heirs of the wilderness generation, but the same people. Time and space telescoped together within the sacramental world, past and present, are one. And so when we take communion, we're not just reminded of the Last Supper and the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, but it is rather as if we are a part of the Lord's Supper. You can go there in your imagination, remembering the past, but more than that, participating in the past. He's inviting you to the table, to the most famous table, to the Leonardo da Vinci table, to the Last Supper. We become for a moment the disciples sitting around that table of the Last Supper. The sacred meal connects our souls to God by inviting us to the most famous supper of all time. And second, it connects your soul to God by tasting the future. So by looking back, but also by tasting the future. Communion helps us to look back and relive what happened in the past, but it also helps us to taste a sample of the intimacy of the relationship that we're going to have with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth throughout eternity. When we take communion, we don't just remember a long-dead Jesus. Rather, we celebrate the presence of our living Lord. He is still living. We're celebrating his presence. Christ has been resurrected. He is with you, church. He never leaves you church in a real way though it's only in part the kingdom of god has been inaugurated but it has not come in full we're in that period between the world's still broken but with communion we're reminded that when christ returns we really get to live with him we really get to dine with him we really get life with him now when i was a kid growing up in a southern baptist church nothing wrong with southern baptist churches if you grew up in one but I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I remember one time, kind of, like when I got in high school. I didn't go to church when I was a kid. But when I, when I was in high school, I remember we did a special music time, and some older lady with a perm, um, it was a delightful perm, um, although as a teenager I didn't necessarily think that, um, she sang a solo, and then the worship pastor got up, and he said, well, if you didn't like that, you're not going to like heaven, because that's what it's going to be like. And I said, what am I doing here? Why am I in this place? Heaven sounds like hell to me. So we either have this, this ethereal choir practice in the sky view of, of, of heaven, where we're just going to be singing all the time, or we might have a more humble version of it, where it's heaven is filled with a lot of bowing before God. There's a lot of bowing. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm now in my 30s, and I can't even give my kids a bath without my back hurting. I can't spend that much time in a kneeling position. Eternity in a kneeling position also sounds like hell to me at this point in my life. Communion reminds us of what life in eternity is what really going to be like. That it's not just choir practice. It's not just kneeling but it's living, it's working without frustration, it's seeing all your work matter. 
Everything you do, it, it matters, and you're appreciated for it. All your meaningless moments are no longer meaningless, but they're suddenly filled with meaning. And not only that, but you get to eat, you get to drink with the Lord. You get to eat with the Lord. You get to dine with Him. You won't grow frustrated. Heaven is like a wedding banquet where it does not stop. And communion is like the appetizer to that wedding banquet. We are getting a taste of the future. At communion, N.T. Wright says this also. He says, at communion, we are like the children of Israel in the wilderness, tasting fruit plucked from the promised land. It is the future coming to meet us in the present. That's why it says we proclaim him until he comes again. We're proclaiming that he's going to come again. Oftentimes we make communion, we, we do this thing backwards. We make baptism really celebrative. You know, when, when someone gets baptized, usually people clap and scream, and that's great. I hope we keep on doing that. But baptism's kind of a solemn ce- ceremony. You're saying the old person's dead. This is like a funeral that old person, that old Fletcher, he's dead, and he's been risen to new life in Christ. But then at the same time, we make communion this solemn thing, and it should be in some ways, but in other ways, we are proclaiming that the, Christ, that the, the Lord of the universe is coming back, and so it's almost a celebrative thing. At times, we get these things swapped up. Communion's not magical, my friends. The, 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 I want to be really clear. The bread and wine they stay bread and juice, bread and wine. They stay bread and grape liquid. But communion is meant to help us remember, and not just help us to remember, but to experience God in a real way. And lastly, this passage teaches us that communion has some effects, some special effects on us as God's community. So lastly, the, the effects of communion. Paul doesn't just cast a vision for what communion is in this passage, but then he applies it to a real church with real problems. This church is messed up. They're doing crazy stuff. And so what he's teaching is that communion reveals the status of your heart and the authenticity of your faith. Let's look at at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I love this. They think they're eating the Lord's Supper. He's like, that's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend this in you? No, I will not. Now you have to read between the lines a little bit here. But what's happening is the wealthy believers in the church are oppressing the poor, the wealthy are going forward with their meal and with their drink, while the poor aren't. And that's why he says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They're humiliating those who have nothing. When it came to the communion meal, many people thought, me first. I've got to go first. The communion meal was like lunch at my home growing up, where my uncle Brent who is six foot eight and weighs over 300 pounds, would eat all the lunch if you didn't get through that line first. And so that's what it became like. Me, you got to go and get yours before anybody else does. 
this me-first attitude was oppressing the poor believers in the church. So when Paul says, whoever therefore eats the, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, he's referring back to the way that the, communion, the, way that the Corinthians have been handling communion. So what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy fashion? It means that you have a me-first attitude where you're not considering the needs of others around yourself, but instead you're considering your needs first, always. That is what taking communion in an unworthy manner means. There's no way for you to have a me-first attitude and to be following the Lord. Because when you look at the, the life of Christ, Christ never had a me-first attitude. Instead, he had a me-last attitude all the way to the cross. Me-last. Father, take this cup from me so that I don't have to bear it. But me-last. I will do whatever your will says. And so Christ went forward to the cross on our behalf. And so when we have a me-first attitude, we do not reflect the glory of God. We do not reflect the life of Christ. Me first is the default mode of the human heart. That's where we all go back to. We're always back to me first. Without the sustaining power of the gospel, we'll creep back there all the time. And let me tell you, I understand the reasoning behind me first. The reasons that you might have with a me first attitude. Those reasons are usually one of these two things. Most people de develop a me-first attitude due to fear or lust. They fear that they will not have enough. And it's a real fear for many of us. And so we think, me first. I've got to get mine, and then I can care for other people. Or they lust for more. And this is reasonable more than what we, we want to say just because I'm using the word lust. But it's more like they have a desire for more. I need to be farther in my career. I need to be farther in life. I need more. So me first, then I take care of others. Where has a me first attitude crept into your life? Remember, it's the default mode of the human heart. And so where has it crept in? Here's two places to look. Your money and your time. Your money and your time. Those are the two easiest places to look. How much of your time do you spend serving and caring for others more than yourself? How much of your thought life is controlled by getting more time to pursue your own comfort? How much of your money is spent on yourself and your lusts, your desires, as opposed to on others or on the kingdom of God? If you want to know where me first reigns, you need look no farther than your time and your money. If your life screams me first, and you're unwilling to come back to the Lord, yet you take communion Paul says that that's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You, that's not even communion that you're eating. You're just having bread and wine. Communion is only really communion if God is transforming your heart and shaping you more in the image of Christ. 
If you come to the communion table with a life that screams, me first in all things, it's as if you're being teleported back to the, the Last Supper, just the same as the rest of us. But your role at the table is a little bit different because when you go to that table with an attitude of me first in all things, you're going in the role of Judas, who thought me first, who had fear and lust, and he was driven to seek his own kingdom first, and he betrayed Christ. Yet he still took, he still ate, he's still at the Last Supper. But he had this me first life that denied what he proclaimed with his mouth. Communion invites us to snap out of this me first mode. This is why the passage says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This isn't talking about God smiting people from heaven, sending down lightning bolts, like, oh, you took communion in an unworthy fashion, boom, dead. Rather, this is talking about the Lord leaving us to our own devices and our own search for me first more, just like he did Judas. If you remember how Judas died, it wasn't through a smiting. It was through a gradual turning over to his own devices He got what he wanted, and what he wanted was not good for him. And so for us, when we have a me-first attitude in all things, you might get what you want, you just don't know that it's good for you. This is actually supported, like secular psychologists believe this. There's a, there's a professor at Harvard named Daniel Gilbert who wrote a book on stumbling on happiness. And the main thesis of this book, not Christian book, is that people do not know what they want. And when they get it, they're not going to enjoy it very much. It's a very uplifting book. But there's something that rings true there. Because we know that the default mode of the human heart is to go back to me first, we practice communion regularly so that we can be snapped out of it, so that we can be woken up to the realities that Christ served us, that he gave up everything, that he has this me-last attitude. And when we follow him, he is inspiring us, he is shaping us, and he is changing us into being me-last people. That is what it means to be a gospel person, that you let this message dive so deep into you, inspire you so much that you become a me-last person. And so when we take communion, it's not saying you got your life perfect. It's saying, I will do whatever Christ calls me to do. And that is for me to be last. And so when we have this opportunity to examine ourselves with communion, to look inward and see if your life reflects your beliefs, we have to look at it. We have to examine ourselves and be honest with ourselves. Do you have a me first life? Are you genuinely seeking Christ with everything that you are? Or are you a poser? Are you a Judas? Let me apply this for just a minute, and then we'll take communion. We'll take this meal. The application today is this. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look inward and see if your life reflects your beliefs. Examine yourself and be honest with yourself. If you see within your heart things that are not in step with the way of Jesus, 
not in step with the way of the gospel, confess those, receive the forgiveness of the Lord, and then receive communion. You don't have to get it all cleaned up. Now, there are times, some of you, you might need to refrain from the meal on some weeks because you realize that there are issues in your life that you need to repent of that are more than just heart issues. You might need to reconcile a relationship. You might need to do other drastic things to follow the Lord. But if you can come to the Lord and confess your sins to him and allow his forgiveness to flood over you, that is making you worthy for this seat. To, to take communion in an unworthy manner means that you have a me-first attitude and everything. But to take communion in a worthy manner means that you're willing to hear and do whatever Jesus says. So when you come to the communion table, you're saying, whatever you say, and then you eat. I will follow whatever you say. In just a minute, we're going to participate in the sacred meal that we call communion. And this week, we're going to have a little bit of time built in to examine ourselves before we come to the table to sit and to pray just a minute or two. We'll still have the stations in, in the normal places. You'll still have the, the last couple of songs to, to come and receive communion whenever you're ready. And the way that you do it, we, we have these two stations up here. You come forward, you break off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the juice or the wine, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is marked with twine so that you know which one, so it's not whichever one randomness permits. And then you, you take. You can either take it there or back at your seat. You can do that any time over the next couple of songs. But with these few minutes where we're going to examine ourselves, reflect, I want you to be asking the question, yourself the question, does my life reflect Christ? Can I take communion in a worthy fashion today? Allow this, my friends, allow this to be an opportunity, not for condemnation, but for forgiveness, for repentance, to come back to the Lord over and over again. I need communion every week so that I'm reminded of this good news that Christ has died for me, that Christ is coming again, that I live with him, that the, the future has met the present. I need this good news to snap me out of my me-first attitude because I go there often. So use it as an opportunity every week, but especially this week, to seek his forgiveness, to receive his forgiveness, and to receive communion. If you can't take communion with a clear conscience today, I encourage you, continue praying. I invite you. Let, I would love to pray with you. In fact, we might have a, a couple people in the back that, we could pr that could pray with you today. If you need to pray with someone, just say, I, don't, I, I need to figure this thing out. And next week, hopefully, you can take communion with us. It would be a glorious time for you to take that meal with us. So I'm going to invite the band up here. We'll pray and have a, a couple minutes to reflect. Then I'll come back up and pray for us again, and we'll start singing, and uh, we, can, we can start receiving the, the communion meal. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we eat this meal today, we pray that you will remind us of the truth of the gospel, that you will give us clear hearts and minds, that you will inspire us with the grace 
of the gospel of Jesus, that you put everyone before yourself, self-sacrificially, and help us to follow you in that, to care for those who are around us, to have eyes to see those who are hurting, to have eyes to see those who have none. Father, snap us out of our me-first attitudes and bring us back to life with you. As we examine, give us clarity. And Father, we pray that you give us forgiveness. You give us true communion with one another and with you. We ask this in Christ's name.